0: Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord. And I just pray, Father, your Holy Spirit would just lead us and guide us right now just to hear from you, Father, to hear, Lord, what you would want to speak to myself and to each one of us, Father, as we turn to your word. Amen. So this week, we're looking at Understanding Faith, Part 3, Persevering Faith. And the reason this is Part 3 is last time I spoke was Part 2. And so, just as a quick review... The Greek word little faith, olgopistos, is used five times in the New Testament, and four of those occurrences are found in the Gospel of Matthew. In each occurrence, Christ showed his disciples area, areas where their faith still lacked the depth and maturity necessary to withstand the rigors, challenges, and trials of life. Our faith may be strong in specific areas, But Jesus wants our faith to grow and mature in every area of our lives. Each time Jesus confronted them with their weak faith, he included the rebuke, O you of little faith! Jesus' motivation for revealing their little faith was not to humiliate or discourage them, but to help them to recognize aspects of their faith that needed strengthening. He wanted them to develop an unshakable faith Enabling them to stand strong in the face of whatever trials, hardships, or uncertainties would bring, life would bring. From the four times Jesus said, oh, you have little faith, in the Gospel of Matthew, we can identify four things that attack our faith and God's strategy to overcome them. And there are four aspects to faith, and each one releases God's glory. There's creative faith. This is the power of faith. And this releases the glory of his name. There's doctrinal faith, this is the truth of faith, it's the glory of his word. There's persevering faith, this is the strength of faith, and this is the glory of his life. And then there's God-conscious faith, this is the reality of faith, and this is the glory of his presence. The first time Jesus, re- and so just to review quickly, the first time that Jesus rebuked his disciples with the words, O oh, you of little faith, is found in Matthew 6.30, and it relates to creative faith. Now, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Through creative faith, God's provision is released in our lives, whether through miracles, healings or his divine supply for those areas where we're experiencing lack. Creative faith releases the glory of his name. As we testify to God's faithfulness and the miraculous provision to those around us, God's name is glorified in the sight of both believers and unbelievers. So when God does something supernatural, and you share that with somebody, God is glorified. They go, wow! Whether it's a healing, whether it's a supernatural provision... The opposition that comes against creative faith is error of vision. Error of vision occurs when we turn our eyes away from God and his divine provision and focus on our lack or the apparent impossibility of the circumstances we face. It is evident from reading the context of the reproof, "Oh, you of little faith, in Matthew chapter 6, that it contains a warning against Worry. Of the six times the Greek word for worry is used in the Gospel of Matthew, five of those occurrences are found in Matthew chapter 6 in relationship to, oh, you have a little faith. Worry is the enemy that attacks us, so we're unable to operate in creative faith. Worry causes us to forget God's faithfulness and to focus on our lack. Worry paralyzes us, so we're unable to step out in faith and trust God for his provision. The second aspect of of faith is doctrinal faith. The opposition that comes against doctrinal faith is error of doctrine. Doctrinal faith releases the glory of his word. When we understand and correctly apply God's word to our lives, we demonstrate the glory of his word so the entire world can witness the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work within us. In other words, when you understand God's word properly and you apply it, People say, what happened to you? How have you changed? You know, and that gives glory to God's word. Wrong doctrine always brings confusion and disgrace to God's word. In Matthew 16, Jesus warned his disciples of the wrong doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees with the words, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. However, his disciples misunderstood Jesus' warning and thought he was speaking about bread. Then Jesus rebuked his disciples with the words, O you of little faith. Finally, Jesus' disciples understood that he wasn't warning them against bread, but the error of doctrine which had corrupted the Jewish religious leaders. Matthew 6.12 Then they understood that he did not tell them, To beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The leaven of doctrine that Jesus was referring to is anything that corrupts, misconstrues, or adulterates God's word. Pure and unleavened doctrine is always Christ-centered. It is always Christ-centered. If you hear doctrine and it's not Christ-centered, even if it contains truth, it's leavened. John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Unleavened doctrine always draws people to Christ. You know, the Pharisees, one of their leaven, they want to draw people to themselves. That's where it was leavened. But there's different, so we looked at that last time. So today, we're going to look at the third aspect of faith, which is persevering faith. Persevering faith results in the glory of his life as the life of Jesus is manifest through his followers who are consistently led by the Spirit, not by the flesh. When a believer lacks persevering faith, it results in error of lifestyle. Matthew chapter 14 contains a third rebuke, O you of little faith, which speaks of persevering faith. The story dealing with persevering faith is the one where Peter steps out of the boat to walk in the water. Previously to this, previous to this story, Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. So let's look at that quickly. Matthew 14, starting at verse 16. And Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass And he took the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000, we find an example of both creative faith and doctrinal faith. First, there was a lack of provision. The people followed Jesus into a deserted place, and spent the entire day with him. In the evening, they found themselves without food. While Jesus' disciples recognized the needs of the people, they failed to recognize that God was able and willing to supply their needs. Matthew 15, verse 14, 14, 15. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late send the multitude away that they may go into the village and buy themselves food so they saw the lack but now they didn't they failed to see the provision and before you can ever see god's provision you need to experience lack we see an example of creative faith in operation as jesus took 5 small loaves and 2 fish he looked up to his father in heaven prayed and then distributed them until all were fully satisfied with the provision they miraculously received. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven and he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. In this story, we also see an aspect of doctrinal faith. Through Jesus' deep concern for the welfare of the people and his supernatural provision... He provided insight into the loving and faithful nature and character of God. So by his actions, they learned something about God's nature and character. God meets our needs as we faithfully turn to him in prayer. Doctrinal faith is also seen as Jesus is revealed as the source and central figure of God's provision. Jesus was the one who took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed, and he broke, and he gave the loaves to his disciples. Although the d- disciples distributed the loaves and the fish to the people, they only gave what they had already directly received from Jesus' hands. When we give to others, we always need to remember that what we give, what we give comes directly from God if we fail to seek God for wisdom or provision, we will find ourselves unable to truly meet the needs of those around us. You know, when we want to say something to someone, to give them a word of encouragement, we need to pray and say, God, what do you want me to say? What is the thing that you'd want to share? And even every week as I pray and I seek the Lord, I'm trying to hear, God, what do you want me to share? What do you want to share with the people? Doctrinal faith is remembering everything we received is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and comes from him and is for his glory. That's doctrinal faith. It's always from Jesus and it's for his glory. So now continuing in Matthew 14 verse 21. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked in the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, "Lord, save me!" And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, "O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So now let's just sort of unpack the story, verse 21 again. Now those who'd eaten were about five thousand men besides women and children, and immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the the multitudes away. It is interesting to note that immediately after the great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. The Greek word translated as made means to necessitate, to compel, constrain, it indicates the urgency that most motivated Jesus as he forced his disciples into the boat, and it also implies their resistance to leaving. The disciples were still enjoying the afterglow of the miracle they had just witnessed and actively participated in. Possibly, the disciples didn't want to leave but sought to remain, enjoy seeing the awe of the people and the misplaced admiration that people had for them. Can you imagine? The disciples were the ones that actually kept handing the food out. And they thought, you know, it's my hands. You know, they would think, you know, we got a great ministry now. What we're going to do is we're going to supply, we're going we're to have a, a ministry of supplying food for bar mitzvahs and weddings. <laughs> have a miraculous wedding and bar mitzvah. Just give this phone number a call. So, who knows what they were thinking. Wow, look at how we've been used this miracle. And Jesus said, get into the boat. No, no, no. Get into the boat. (laughs) Jesus knew it was essential that his disciples get into the boat so they would not be puffed up by the praises of men, but also to provide them with a realistic evaluation of their own spiritual maturity and the extent of their persevering faith. You know, after that miracle, they thought, you know, we are great men of faith. Look at what God did. We're great men of faith. It is easy to overestimate our spiritual maturity and strength of character when things are going well. But the true litmus test of persevering faith comes when we face disappointments, opposition, or adversity. That's how we know how strong our persevering faith really is. Verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now evening came, he was alone there. Jesus' response to the wonderful miracle and the success that his father had granted him was not to sit back and rest on his laurels, but to go to a secluded place on the mountain to pray and commune with his father. After a Christian receives a wonderful answer to prayer or a glorious victory, they sometimes falter in their faith. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever saw someone who, let's say, was seeking for God to heal them or, or seeking for a breakthrough because they were in a difficult place? And then God supernaturally provides. But then, later on, they've become lukewarm or, or, or just complacent in their faith. You go, What happened? is when they were in that place of need, they were seeking God. But once they had their need met, once they had success, they stopped persevering and pressing into God. And instead, they went back. I've been a believer 42 years, but 25 years ago, I had a powerful experience with my with the Lord. Actually, I was in my mother-in-law's home at the time when I got filled with the Spirit. It was a very, very, very tangible, physical, powerful experience. I mean, but I made a decision that night. After experiencing that, I decided that I'm going to pursue God every day. And I decided that above all else, I'm going to seek Him. And I started doing that. That was 25 years ago. Somebody, we could have thought, well, that was a great experience. God must really love me. Everything must be going so well. I'll just take things easy. But I said, no, it was, see, the visitation is not the destination, but the invitation. The visitation is not the destination, but the invitation. But many times when people have an encounter with God, they think, oh, I've arrived. It's wonderful God did that. No, God is inviting you now to take that experience and press into him and grow in your relationship with him. But if we don't, we end up actually backsliding or becoming lukewarm. We must be careful that we do not become so satisfied with what we have already achieved or what God has already done that we make no further effort to press into God or to seek further in, to enrich our relationship with Christ. Jesus' response, no matter what the circumstances or what had taken place, whether easy or difficult, was always uh, to spend time with his father in prayer. That was his response always. Jesus exhibited persevering faith and a consistency in his relationship with his father. Jesus is the perfect example of persevering faith. I love this from Isaiah 42, 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastline shall wait for his law. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice justice on the earth. In other words, when Jesus came, no matter what opposition, whatever difficulty, he didn't stop. No matter how difficult things were, he persevered. He did not allow discouragement. He did not allow anything to cause him to be faltering. He is the perfect example of persevering faith. It says in Isaiah 53, he was like a tender shoot out of dry ground. No matter how hard the circumstances were, no matter how hard the people were, he stayed tender to God. Verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Jesus forced his disciples into a boat that was headed right into a raging midnight storm. There are many different reasons storms can happen in our lives. Sometimes we make bad decisions and we end up in difficult situations. But sometimes we're actually wanting to walk with God and he leads us and engineers a storm for our lives. The place where the true depth of our faith and confidence in Christ is tested is seen not on the pleasant and peaceful shores of Galilee but in the middle of the raging sea of life where we are tossed by the waves of adversity and buffeted the winds of foreboding circumstances. That's where it's tested, guys. Sure, I like to be on the shores too. Sunbathing. Well, I don't really like sunbathing, but you know what I mean. But, but the thing is, but sometimes God says, I'm pushing you out into the storm. Verse 25 Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 and 6 a.m. We can reasonably conclude that the disciples had been battling the storm for at least nine hours, if not longer. By this time, the disciples would have been emotionally and physically exhausted. In contrast to the disciples who spent the evening fighting the storm, Jesus, who had spent the night in prayer, walked calmly toward them, on top of the waves of the sea. Jesus and the disciples were experiencing the same storm. But while the disciples were overwhelmed by the storm, Jesus was able to rise above the turmoil and fear and literally walk over the waves. This is interesting. Jesus spent the night in prayer and he could walk through this past storm on top of it. But the disciples who tried to deal with it were overwhelmed. Verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. The Greek word for ghost used here is phantasma, and it means an apparition or a phantom. It is only used twice in the New Testament, once here in Matthew and once in Mark, both times in reference to the same event. These disciples, who a few hours earlier had been mightily used by God, had been reduced to a babbling, superstitious bunch who even failed to recognize Jesus and instead cried hysterically, It's a ghost! A ghost is after us! A ghost is after us! They weren't that spiritual, were they? Their faith evaporated as they found themselves in the midst of the storm. Although a few short hours before they experienced creative faith, and even to some extent doctrinal faith, they clearly lacked persevering faith. It is in the midst of the storms of life that persevering faith is developed and tested. When we are fearful and overcome by the circumstance of life, we will fail to even recognize that it is Jesus with us. When you ever get it where you get so much overwhelmed by circumstance that the reality of Jesus seems like a million miles away. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Immediately Jesus sought to help them overcome the waves of fear that were swamping their hearts by identifying himself and exhorting them to be courageous. I can imagine later, and everything calmed down, how foolish they would have felt looking at Jesus, thinking they were screaming at him, a ghost, a ghost, right? But when we are in the midst of fear, we act very foolish, and we've all done that. Verse 28, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked in the water to go to Jesus. Peter was the first of the disciples to recover by turning his attention to Jesus. Peter demonstrated creative faith by believing that if Jesus could walk on the waves of the raging sea, that Jesus could empower him to do the same. Lord, if it is you. See, all of a sudden he started saying, Jesus is doing that? Then Jesus could get me to do that. As Peter watched Jesus walk on the raging waves of the storm, his creative faith blossomed, and he believed that this same Jesus who healed the sick, delivered the demon possessed, and fed the 5,000 could empower him to do the same. Peter also demonstrated doctrinal faith by realizing that the power and authority did not lie with himself, but with Jesus and his word. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 1 John five fourteen and 15. Now this is a confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. Doctrinal faith is knowing his will by knowing his word and not being self-willed nor acting presumptuously, but prayerfully acting in accordance with his word. Some people mistakenly believe that if I just believe hard enough, then it will happen. However, our prayers and our desires must be in alignment with God's will and God's purposes for them to be effective. James 4.3. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words... Some people get very disappointed with God because they think, I've been asking for this and God did not answer me. He did not provide what I needed or wanted. But it's because they didn't know what they needed and what they wanted wasn't what God had prepared. One time I remember meeting a pastor from another country and he told me that it doesn't work. I go, what? He said, you know, he had, he had, there was a piece of property and it was a third world country that he was praying for that he could buy so he could build the church on it. So he used to walk around that property for like I think every week and for about 10 years every time he'd walk around it, once a week he'd pray that God I, I'm claiming this property. Well after 10 years somebody else bought it and built something else on it. And he said so God didn't wasn't faithful to his word. But I said to him but, but did you ever ask if that was God's will here to have that property to build the church? You know, we prayed for every one of these properties. And we got every one. But you know why? God, first of all, showed us. I remember it was in 2001, the Lord showed a vision that we would own that strip bar. So for two years, every time I drove by that strip bar, I prayed, God, one day that'll be ours. I just, but, and then two years later it happened. But the reason the prayers were effective is it was God's will. He showed us his will and then he wanted us to pray into his will. But if I would pray about getting it and it wasn't God's will, nothing would have happened. I remember went to a pastor's prayer breakfast about two weeks after we bought the strip bar. It was in the front page of the newspaper. You know, church buys strip bar. Made the front page. And one pastor, you know, said, how how do you rate getting your picture in the newspaper? I said, will you buy your strip bar? You can have your picture in the paper too. (laughs) But the point is that God revealed His will and then we chose to pray into it. But if you're praying about stuff and it's not God's will, you're going to be disappointed. So we need to know God's will. We always pray for healing because we know God heals. We don't know how or when, but we can pray. We can know by God's word things we pray about. We can pray for salvation. We can pray because we know God's heart. But if we're saying, I need a pink Cadillac, you may be very disappointed. Peter did not act presumptuously or rashly, but looked to Jesus to say the word. For Peter to be able to step out of the boat and walk in the water required several things to happen. Jesus had to speak the word, and Peter had to hear Jesus speak the word, and Peter had to obey the word. Peter could only hear Jesus speak the word above the raging storm if his full attention was on Jesus. Remember, there was a huge storm going on, all the wind and the waves. So for Peter to hear Jesus' word, he had to focus on Jesus to hear that word. When we're in a storm and we're fearful and we're overwhelmed by this and that, we can't hear what Jesus is saying to us. So we need to stop focusing on the storm and focus on Jesus and listen to what he is going to say. Verse 29. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked in the water to go to Jesus. Jesus. Peter literally literally only needed to hear Jesus say one word, come. Many times Jesus speaks, it is simple, succinct, and life-changing. And the times that God has spoken to me, it's been like that. Just very simple, very clear, and then to embrace that word and apply it. Based on just one word from Jesus, Peter's faith rose up, And he stepped out of the boat and walked in the water. Peter was not acting presumptuously. He said, if you command me, I will go. Jesus spoke the word, then he stepped out. Peter didn't just walk in the water, but he walked in the water to go to Jesus. Peter's destination was Jesus. Peter chose to leave the security of what he knew, the boat, and step out onto what appeared to be impossible in the natural terrifying and life-threatening, the raging sea. Sometimes we have to leave our comfort zone to follow Jesus. Sometimes God is going to ask you to do things. You go, I can't do that. How could I do that? I remember it was 23 years ago. There's a prophetic word that God told me through a prophet that I was supposed to start a Bible study, and, it would, and he gave me a whole bunch of details of what happened. And I go, I don't know anything about preaching. I've never gone to Bible school but this guy says, this is what God wants you to do. But I had to w- willing to w- step out of the boat, out of my comfort zone into something that I thought it was going to fail. What I really thought was going to happen is I would do it and I don't know if anybody would show up. And if they showed up, they say, Howard, thanks a lot for the Bible study. Hope you do well. See you sometime. <laughs> but that's not what happened. But I had to step out. And, but my motivation was this. God, even if it fails, at least I've been obedient to you. So we sometimes have to leave our comfort zone to actually see God move in our lives. Peter's motivation was not a whimsical desire thinking it would be neat to walk on the water, but a deep stirring and longing in his heart to be a follower of Jesus in every way and fully imitate his example. Ephesians 5.1 Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. You know, Peter, he went, I want to glorify Jesus. I really want to be his disciple. I really want to be his follower. So if that's what Jesus is doing, I want to do it. You know, people, God will bring people in their lives that will hurt us, will wrong us, will do all those things. And he says, now will you be like me and forgive them and bless them and pray for them? And it's not easy. It's painful. It's difficult. In fact, in the natural, sometimes it appears impossible. But Jesus says, look to me and imitate me. Verse 30 and 31. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter demonstrated creative faith by stepping out of the boat, even in the midst of the raging sea. Peter demonstrated doctrinal faith as he focused his gaze on Jesus and responded to his word, Come. Come. However, Peter faltered in persevering faith as he took his off, eyes off of Jesus and began to sink. It wasn't the wind or the waves or the water that ende- endangered Peter's life, it was his little faith. Peter stepped out in doctrinal faith by obeying Jesus' word and was able to experience the miraculous, but he failed to walk in persevering faith. Creative faith can be seen as a sprint, while persevering faith is like a marathon. Creative faith results in the miraculous, but persevering faith results in faithfulness. Do you know something? Even when we're immature, we can operate in creative faith. You know, we can see somebody has a need, we pray for them, they're healed. We can operate in creative faith very easily by trusting God and stepping out and praying for people. But persevering faith requires time to develop. That's why you can see somebody operating in creative faith, but in having error of lifestyle and struggling with the stuff because they haven't yet learned persevering faith, because that takes time. I love it. I'll say that one more time. Creative faith results in the miraculous, but persevering faith results in faithfulness. So when we start developing persevering faith, we become faithful and consistent. We see three steps as Peter faltered in persevering faith. Peter saw the wind was boisterous, Two, he became afraid, and three, he began to sink. For we walk by sight, faith, but not by sight. Peter walked in the water when he walked by faith, but when he saw the wind was boisterous and walked by sight, he became fearful and began to sink. Even though Peter faltered his persevering faith, he still he still instinctively cried out to Jesus, saying, Lord, save me! And of course, Jesus being the Savior, saved him. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. Even in the midst of our failures and weaknesses, Jesus is there to help us. He is just waiting for us to call to him. In other words, when our persevering faith fails, it's not he turns his back to us. We call out, help me, Jesus. And many times in my life, help me, Jesus. I'm overcome by fear. I'm overcome by worry. I'm overcome by discouragement. Whatever it is, help me, Jesus. And he's there. However, even while Jesus was rescuing Peter from drowning in the sea, he rebuked him with the words, "O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Of course, there are many ways one could respond to Jesus' rebuke. One could respond in self-justification. The waves, the winds, and the storm were were furious. And I'm, I'm only human, of course. I was overcome with fear and doubts. However, such a response magnifies the weakness of the human condition and diminishes the true greatness of Jesus to make us overcomers. Such a response sets up a life, uh, uh, sets us up to live a defeated life. Self-justification destroys any incentive to grow in our faith and leaves us anchored in the status quo. Do you know when somebody says, you know, who am I that God would use me? I'm so weak, I'm so insignificant. That sounds humble. That is the most arrogant statement a person can make. What they're saying is, my weakness and insignificance is even greater than God's greatness. That God is not great enough to use me. That is so arrogant. But we should say, God can use me. Whatever God wants to do in my life, he can do. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is true humility, saying that my weakness is less than God's grace and glory and mercy and strength, and that He can cause me to not not only overcome, but fulfill everything He has planned for my life. It is our confidence and faith in Christ's love and faithless that enables us to be overcomers by walking in persevering faith, Romans 8.37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The question that Jesus posed to Peter in his rebuke provides us with insights into what causes us to falter in persevering faith and fall into error of lifestyle. When Jesus asked, why did you doubt? He was not implying that doubt was the root cause of Peter's faith faltering. It was not the root cause of his faltering faith. In fact, doubt can be an important step on the way to faith. When doubts arise, we decide to either sink in unbelief or look to Jesus and rise to a place of faith. So when doubts come, it's actually an opportunity to say, I can trust God now. Jesus was asking Peter to think and consider what had caused him to give in to doubt in the first place so he could avoid the same pitfall in the future. As Christians, we can only walk in persevering faith by keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus no matter what is happening around us. Peter began to be filled with fear and doubt because he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to observe and contemplate the storms and the waves and the winds. As Peter looked at the waves, the terror of the storm totally obscured his view of Jesus. The sheer force of the storm totally blinded him to the reality that Jesus is our help in time of trouble. The key to perse- persevering faith is abiding in Christ. Here's just a few verses from John 15 Abide in me, and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Abiding in Christ is when our hearts are captivated by his love, faithfulness, power, wisdom, and all the wonders of his salvation. We abide in Christ by falling in love with him more As we meditate and consider the revelation of Jesus found in his word and spend time in prayer sharing our hearts, his faithfulness and love become more real to us. So the key is abiding. And that as we're abiding, his love, his faithfulness becomes more real to each one of us. The opposition that causes a Christian to falter in persevering faith and to fall in the Arab lifestyle is distractions. It's distractions that is the root cause when we fail And persevering faith. Distractions cause us to focus on other things, which can quickly captivate our hearts, resulting in us drowning in whatever we're focusing on. In Peter's case, it was a storm raging around him that caught his attention and distracted him from his devotion and focus on Jesus. Peter began to sink into the sea of fear. However, the other things can distract us. For example, when we comp- contemplate the uncertainty of the future. The what-ifs of life can cause us to sink into doubt and fear. However, Jesus wants to remember that he is our source of security. Hebrews thirteen five, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We may become distracted if we contemplate our past failures. When we focus on our failures, we sink into the sea of regret and shame and become overwhelmed by the waves of shame, guilt, and condemnation threatening to drown us. Isn't that true? When we focus on, why did I do that? I'm so sorry I did that. Or I wish I'd never made that decision. Then what happens? We begin to sink into shame and condemnation and regret. That's why Paul writes in Philippians three thirteen and 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. If we failed in the past, if we've wronged people, we go and we confess it, we ask for forgiveness, but once we've done that, we don't keep looking back again. Because if you do, you will constantly be living a life sinking in the sea of shame and regret. But we're saying, I'm forgiven. I will no longer look at the past, but I will forget what has happened, and I'm going to look to Jesus and walk in his way. There's no, many, there's no one here that can never say that there's nothing they regret they've done or decided or said. But Jesus died so we could be forgiven, that our sins could be washed away, and he could lead us in a way of victory. But if our focus is on our failures, our past, we will be sinking in the sea of regret and shame. We can become distracted by all the injustice, corruption, and evil that flourishes around us, and we become disheartened, cynical, and And sink into the sea of indifference. Jesus warned us about becoming cold and indifferent. Matthew 24, 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. We can become distracted by people who have hurt us, betrayed us, or wronged us. We can harbor unforgiveness and resentment in our hearts. We can sink into the sea of bitterness. Hebrews 12:15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God; lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You can keep focusing and thinking about all the things that people have done against you. You can do that, and you will sink into the sea of bitterness, and you will spend the rest of your life in that sea of bitterness. Or you can look away from that. You can forgive them, and you can look to Jesus. You can either walk on top of the waves, or you can sink and drown in them. Many things can distract us, which in themselves are not bad. They're sometimes good things, but if they become our focus, they become bad things. We can be distracted by our success and sink into the sea of pride. We can be distracted by the riches of his life and sink into the sea of covetousness. We can be distracted by comfort and pleasures and sink into the sea of lust and hedonism. There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with riches. There's nothing wrong with comfort and pleasures. But it's wrong when it becomes our focus. A person who's caught up in lust, all he can think about is lust because he's sinking into the sea of lust. But when we keep our focus on Jesus, we can enjoy his blessings without being destroyed by those blessings. I like that. I'm going to write that down. Even Jesus warned his disciples not to allow success in ministry to become a distraction. The source of our joy is not how successful our ministry is, but that Christ has given us eternal life. Luke 10, Luke 10, 20. Therefore, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice that your ministry is successful. That's not your source. You should be thankful that when, when God blesses our ministry... But that our source of joy is that we're saved, that Jesus died for us, that the Holy Spirit revealed Jesus to us, and we have eternal life. Our motivation for ministry must never be based on a need to be needed, but on a compelling love of Christ. We must never be motivated for a need to be needed. If you see people who have a need to be needed go to ministry, it's very, very messy very messy, and they get upset when people don't acknowledge them, and they get ex- upset when, when they're not successful and whatnot. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. When we become distracted, we, or sorry, we can become distracted when we find ourselves surrounded by pleasant and peaceful circumstances. If we rely on our circumstances to be a source of peace instead of Jesus. The problem with this distraction is that it's, it ill prepares us for the coming storms of life. And storms will come. So when things are going well, you ever seen some Christian, things are going well, I don't have to pray so much now. Things are so well, the family's doing well, this is doing well, that's doing well. So we just sort of enjoy that everything is so smooth. But we forget that there's a storm coming. Maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's next month. There's a storm coming. And if, you think, if you're focused on how calm the sea is, you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> if we focus on the sea when it is calm, we will become overwhelmed when a storm arises or becomes unsettling when we observe a few ripples that disturb the apparent tranquility of our immediate circumstances. However, our eyes are firm, however, if our eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus during good times or bad, then nothing will be able to shake our persevering faith. When we're having good times, when everything's peaceful, praise God, enjoy it, but keep pressing into Jesus. Keep your focus on Jesus, because if you take your focus on Jesus and look at how everything's so nice, you will falter when the storms come. The key to persevering faith is not to be able to calm the storm or circumstances around us, but to calm the storm that threatens to rage within us. When our eyes are firmly on Jesus, no matter what storms may be raging around us, he has promised to give us a peace that passes all understanding. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In other words, we people can't make sense. Why are you at peace when all these things are happening? It's because of Jesus. Sometimes Christians are waiting for Jesus to calm the storm so their inner turmoil will end. But Jesus wants to look to, wants us to look to Him so that we will find the peace that originates from knowing Him. Isaiah twenty six three, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The word perfect peace in the Hebrew is shalom. Shalom. There's a. How many people have heard of Hudson Taylor? Okay, a number of you. He was a, a Christian a missionary to China. He lived between 1832 and 1905. He spearheaded the China Inland Mission. And in many ways, he paved the way for the growth of the largest and one of the most vibrant churches in the world the church in communist China. You know, Hudson Taylor, even though he did many things, he struggled for a number of years, you know, still with anxiety, trying his best. And even though people admired him, it wasn't until later on, a number of years after he was in active ministry, that God revealed to him the source of victory. And I'd just like to read this, like an excerpt from, him, from his writings. God made me a new man, God has made me a new man. Wonderful was the experience that had come in answer to prayer, yet so simple as almost to baffle description. Do you know I now think that this striving, longing, hoping for better days to come is not true the true way to holiness, happiness, or usefulness. It is better, no doubt, far better than being satisfied with poor attainments, but not the best way after all. I've been struck with a passage from a book entitled, Christ is All. It says, the Lord Jesus received is holiness begun. The Lord Jesus cherished is holiness advancing. And the Lord Jesus counted upon is never absent would be holiness complete. It is, he is most holy who has the most of Christ within him, enjoys most fully in the finished work and how to have our faith increased only by thinking of all that Jesus is and all he is for us. His life, his death, his work, he himself as revealed to us in the word to be the subject of our constant thoughts. Not a striving to have faith, but a looking off to the faithful one seems all we need, a resting in the loved one entirely. For time and eternity, I looked to Jesus, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed. It was resting in Jesus now and letting Him do the work, which makes all the difference. When He spoke, when Hutchin Taylor spoke in meetings after that revelation, a new power seemed to flow from him. And in practical things of life, a new peace possessed him. Troubles did not worry him as before. He cast everything on God in a new way and gave himself more to prayer. It was the exchanged life that had come to him, the life that is indeed no longer I. It was the reality, Christ lives in me. And how great the difference. Instead of bondage, liberty. Instead of failure, quiet victory within. Instead of fear and weakness, restful sense of sufficiency in another We can either focus on prayer and reading the Bible, or we can focus on Jesus as we pray and read the Bible. See, many times people focus on prayer, reading the Bible, and they go, I don't feel any better. The problem is we're not to focus on prayer and reading the Bible. We're to focus on Jesus as we read the Bible. We're to focus on Jesus as we pray. That's the key. When I open the Word every time, I don't say, well, I'm a Christian, so I guess i got to read the Bible. I open the word saying, God, I want to hear your heart. I want to hear your heart. And when I pray, I get up and I go, I say, thank you for salvation. Thank you for your love. I don't say, well, I got to pray now, so let's pull out the list. I don't like phone books and I don't like lists. Right? It's just, but I just want to focus on him. Thank you, thank you for your love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for giving your own son. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that he's resurrected. Thank you that I'm forgiven. And thank you, Lord, that you're going to take my life, even where I'm broken, even where I'm weak, and you're going to make it for your glory. And I begin to pray out for those that God puts in my heart. Persevering faith is living a life of holiness being fully consecrated to Jesus. Every time we fail, it is because we've taken our eyes off Jesus. Every time we fail, it's because we've taken our eyes off Jesus, whether it's been a moment or a month. The way we encourage Christians and help them develop persevering faith is to point them to Jesus and remind them to keep their gaze and attention fully upon Him and His Word. You know, people come to me and say, I'm struggling with this. Well, let's just get together And let's look to Jesus, let's look to His Word. When we find ourselves in one of the storms of life, instead of begrudging our circumstances, or complaining how life is unfair, see it as an opportunity to grow in persevering faith and a relationship with Jesus Christ. When you're going through a storm, when things aren't working out the way you want, when you're discontent, why did this have to happen? Why didn't this work out? See it as an opportunity that, God, I can learn to focus on you and not be distracted by what is bothering me or what is not working out the way I want. I want to choose to take my eyes off those things that are disturbing me, those things that are dissatisfying me, those things that upset me, and I want to focus on Jesus, and then I want to be able to walk on the waves of my circumstances. We don't walk on the waves by focusing on the waves. We walk on the waves by focusing on Jesus. In the midst of the storms of life, picture yourself as Peter, walking hand in hand with Jesus above the waves. Wow. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Could we all stand, please? Father, I thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord. I thank you for your love, Lord. I thank you for Jesus. Jesus. I pray even now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would lead each one of us, Lord. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who has not known you as Lord and Savior, that your Holy Spirit would reveal them, reveal yourself to them, Lord. I pray for those that are discouraged, are sinking in whatever circumstances, they would find another Christian who would be able to come alongside of them and help them to take their eyes off their circumstances and to look to your Son, Jesus. Help each one of us. I thank you for the storms that you allow that we can learn to be men and women of faith, that we can learn to have persevering faith, that we can learn to have joy even in the midst of sorrowful or difficult circumstances. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. As we're going to continue to...